0: Welcome to the Mortise and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 29. I'm Mike Updegraff. And I'm Joshua Klein. And uh, news for the day around here. Uh, today, we have uh, finally sorted through our uh, craft research grant
1: applications. Yep. Wow. What an amazing process. Yeah, we had a, uh, several piles we were sorting through, saying, kind of categorizing... All these people are like in this category in our minds, and this has this thing, and okay, how oh, interesting in that. And yeah. I mean, everyone well, is uh, so fascinating.
0: Like yeah. I, uh, so difficult to choose, but we have it narrowed down to a few finalists, and uh, we will be basically announcing the the recipients next week, yep. I think. Yep. I think we've narrowed it down. And it's going to be great. Uh, yeah. It's going to be great. So stay tuned. Super exciting stuff there.
1: Uh, Also, we have um, a a new thing we're working on. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out how to not say it. Mm -hmm. Um, We're working on something that we want to be launching uh, not too long from now. Um, We'll be talking about it in in a few podcast episodes, right? So stay tuned. (laughs) So stay tuned. (laughs) No. (laughs) Go ahead. Um, Yeah, so we'll be talking about that um but uh it's something we've been working on for a while we've been thinking about how we can best uh serve our readership and uh, encourage them and um so we've been working on a program to do that Mm -hmm. yep it is a super secret
0: project and we'll let you in on it in a little bit (laughs) (laughs) that's our announcement that's the announcement (laughs) Uh, so, and last but not least, there are new stickers in the house, Yep. right? We have our, um, uh, tools shape us, Mm -hmm. uh,
1: sticker over the, the four plane outline. Yep. It's really nice. Yeah. It's sort of based on the theme of issue 10, which was, um, we shape our tools and thereafter our, our tools shape us. So it's talking about the influence that Our tools have on us the the way they shape our minds and our our view of the world.
0: Mm. Yes, and then also the um, "build forever" taken from the the quote from John Ruskin. Yep. When we build, let us what is it exactly?
1: Let us build. Let us think that we build forever. Right. Forever as two words. Two words. Yeah. So it's not let us go on building forever into eternity. Yeah. Uh, But the idea is that it's when we build, we're going to build for ever for longevity yeah. for our uh, you know generations to come to to look at the work of our hands yeah. and say, wow. it's meant to last yeah, meant not to throw last. away yeah so let us build that way <clears throat> yeah amen ruskin that's a good way to build mr <laughs> ruskin yeah excellent thoughts yeah so you can have the sticker that shows that mhm um, so yeah and and some hot sauce came oh, the hot sauce yeah we order stickers from the best sticker place They're great. ever uh, Sticker Mule. Not mm-hmm. not sponsored. No, not at all. Uh, but Sticker Mule is great. Super high quality. Um, and that's why we use them. And then one day we put in an order and what the heck? There's hot sauce they gave us in the hot box. Sauce. So um, my kids fell in love with uh, Mule Sauce. Mule Sauce. <laughs> it's called. <laughs> and so they... Uh, we, can you describe for us the flavor of the mule sauce is it like a super spicy it's not super hot okay it's not but it is it's got a nice sweetness and okay it's quite good it's really good so nice every time we order stickers my kids get a new bottle of com- uh, complimentary mm. mule sauce yeah uh, and and you can actually order mule sauce on their website i saw it. it's like a they list it as a separate Just item a separate thing. Right next to, if you look at on their website, they have their stickers, stickermule.com, I think, or something. And they have these, like, extras or miscellaneous products. Yeah, random things. And they have hot sauce. Uh, And then they also have framed tweets. Yeah. So you buy the frame for, like, the (laughs) best tweets. that You (laughs) You could choose a tweet. I don't know if that's real. It must be real. I I feel like it's sarcastic. Yeah, what a weird company. But, yeah, super quirky and fun. So we got a bunch of uh, quirky, funny stickers, mm-hmm. uh, and they're in our store now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that's it for news. Um, we wanted to talk in this episode um, about something we've been thinking about in terms of uh, craft craft practice, emphasis on the practice. Yeah. Uh, thinking about how you can have craft really woven into your life in a very uh, tangible, regular way. Um, a lot of us, you know, we're, we're hobbyist woodworkers. We're not, you know, spending 40 plus hours a week standing at the bench, producing wooden products to sell. Um, we're hobbyists. We we do our woodworking for fun and for curiosity's sake and for recreation. Mm -hmm. Um, so all of you in that category, like us, um, a lot of us, we find ourselves, you know, we get it, we get out to the shop. Once every few weeks, we kind of, yeah. we are at the office all day for weeks on end. And then we try to figure out where we can s- squirrel away three hours at a time on a Saturday, maybe. And we sneak out to the shop to get our three hours. Um, but what ends up happening is you're kind of separate. It's not really part of your life. It's, right. it's an exception to your life. Yeah. Um, and so we've been thinking about <clears throat> ways to try to get craft work more integrated into regular life yes um because trying to find three hours at a time yeah is hard for and most everyone i know yeah and when it's three hours every few weeks or
0: whatever it's it's a hard reset every time you're starting from scratch where did i leave that what was i doing you know oh this tool it needs sharpened oh look there's surface rust on my saw (laughs) (laughs) because every time I use it because it's been sitting um so yeah we we want to talk about Mm -hmm. more integrating craft as as kind of a lifestyle habit. Um, so we are definitely, um, in terms of just immersion in craft, obviously uh, folks who lived centuries ago have uh, a great advantage over us in that they were practicing uh, working uh, with their hand tools much more often. And that is what we always point to when we say, how did they do things so fast? Well, it's because they were extraordinarily skilled. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, if you were in a shop, it was, you know, 11 hours a day, six days a week. If you were, you know, at your farm, if you're, you're like a, a settler or a pioneer in the, the Southern Appalachians, you're up there, you're making everything you need, you're, you're work, you're just either working or sleeping. Yeah. So you, you, you master your tools. Yeah. Um, and of course we don't have that, um, that sort of lifestyle and so we're not mastering our tools in the same way but uh, there are ways um, in which we can grow in our skill in a a pretty effective way uh, without having to to work with them you know 14 hours a day or mm-hmm. whatever um so yeah uh what do you think about that
1: yeah I mean, the i think the thing that provoked the whole notion for me the idea of trying to weave it into your life um, was we've talked before on this podcast um, about Albert Borgman and uh, his book Technology and the Character of Contemporary Life and the way he's assessed technology and uh, thinking about how we can um, how we relate to it um, and uh, so you could listen back through that episode I won't retrace all of his argument but there's a, there's a part of what he says I think that really Kind of, it, it was the first time that was, this idea was provoked for me. Mm. I'll read a few things that uh, Albert Borgman says about practice and having it be a part of your life. He says, um, On the spur of the moment, we normally act out what has been nurtured in our daily practices as they have been shaped by the norms of our time. If we are to challenge the rule of technology, we can do so only through the practice of engagement. I'm kind of skipping around in this chapter, bringing it forward. He says we have to identify that technology, um, it manifests in pervasiveness and consistency in its pattern. And so he says, I believe that the more strongly we sense and the more clearly we understand this, the more evident it becomes to us that technology must be countered by an equally patterned and social commitment, Hmm. i.e., practice. At this level, the opposition of technology does become fruitful to focal practices, these centering focus practices. Um, So he's talking about our our lives uh, are embedded with technology and it's pervasive. And so in order to counter that, to (coughs) offset some of the negative influences that may come, we have to have an equally pervasive regular counter practice Mm. of, of engagement He says, countering technology through a practice is to take account of our susceptibility to technological distraction, and it is also to engage the peculiarly human strength of comprehension, that is, the power to take in the world and its extent and significance, Hmm. and to respond through an enduring commitment. And I think, so he's basically saying, listen, you know, if you say... I spend too much time staring at a screen. Yeah, show of hands who's in that camp. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, for all of us who spend too much time in front of a screen in our daily work, um, you know, we can do that day in and day out for you know, 50, 50 and a half weeks a year. Mm-hmm. And then we can take our vacation time and go climb some mountain and then go back to our, our job for another year. And if, if we think about engaging with the world that way, or, you know, maybe signing up for the week long, uh, woodworking class. Um, if we only do that once a year, as great as that is, you already know, we already know that's a whole year between, um, uh, situations of engagement, opportunities for engagement. So Borgman's saying it's important that we have regular daily things that we're touching base with reality, running, <clears throat> yeah. making food from scratch, whatever the thing is that you can get into your life. And so it's the regularity that's key. And he even talks about habits and practices that in daily life we live out the habits that we've cultivated. Yeah. And so that's um that I think Borgman's really pin that down in a really helpful, fruitful way. Yeah. I mean, totally. You see,
0: and we've seen and heard from so many people who in the past year have, have taken up practices, vocal practices, like, uh, bread making, or they've, they've committed to some sort of like running goal or some sort of like, I want to finally build my shop that I've been wanting to do. Um, you know, and in, in a very mindful way, like uh, thoughtfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they are engaging in a practice as a counter for, you know the incredible stresses of the world that we live in now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think all of us we can recognize that those centering practices are extremely valuable in that because technology does. it tends to want to move in and take over. Mm-hmm. It wants to take a bigger chunk of our lives than maybe we were willing to give it if we sit back and reflect. So, Um, those kinds of practices, as you're saying, Borgman is saying, they're just necessary to to counter that. Yeah. Um, So how does this relate to woodworking? If you're talking about like a once a year mountaintop experience Mm -hmm. for woodworking, we think uh, like I tend to think about like those really awesome like a week-long woodworking class yeah totally. where you plan you get your vacation time lined up you book your hotel you book your tickets you you get your you know whatever tools you're bringing in order (laughs) load up your dtc or your atc or your you know whatever tc yeah um and you're you're ready to go to um you know someone shop to to um build something over a week um, so
1: those can be valuable times and experiences, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Those are high points for people. Yeah. And that's exactly kind of the point is you have this high point that is so detached from the rest of your life. Right. And so the question is, well, how can I get more of that? Yeah. Like, how can I have that be a part of my daily life? Um, so it, it takes you out of, out of your own context. You know, you think you oh. leave your shop. Yeah. You leave your shop. What's familiar. Um, and you go to this this uh, really great setup with great lighting and a great bench, he's like, Wow, this is so cool and then and you other go, people
0: are like minded, they're psyched and yeah. yeah, and then and then
1: you go home. Yeah.
0: And you're like, Oh yeah, I have to mow the lawn and <laughs> oh yeah. The, those responsibilities which were not present on this awesome pilgrimage to the woodworking school um, are present here and so they just creep in and take over. Um, and you lose that that drive that that sense of oh this is so great this is what i want to spend my life doing um, and so it doesn't going away for that week class in a year does not necessarily lead to a change of habit right it doesn't it doesn't alter your your home life right. it just becomes like oh i can't wait till next year when i get to get away again what am i going to sign up for next year
1: right and i think that's really the point that's the value of i mean at least I think a lot of hobbyists get into uh, woodworking, say, because they want to you know, ha- have it affect their lives and kind of shape yeah. them a little bit. Peter Korn talked about that in his book um, and how the reason a lot of us get involved is because we want to be different people. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about it as kind of self-transformational. Um, but so the idea then is, okay, if you're going to, like Borgman was just talking about, if you want to, be able to counter that if you want to be different or, or, you know, experience that you got to develop habits. So that's really the point. So if you, if you have a once a year experience, you're never going to be able to develop habits. Um, and it reminds me of this book. Um, I just finished reading not too long ago, um, a book by Charles Duhigg, uh, the power of habit. Um, and I've Since looking it up, I realized this book has been passed around. Oh, yeah. New York Times bestseller. You know, it's one of those that it's like (laughs) uh, it's all over the place. People were talking about it when it came out. Um, It was kind of a big thing looking at the psychology of habit forming and how uh, the human mind works and how it shapes us. Um, And so um, which is obviously connected to this idea of um, we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. Mm. What we bring into our lives shapes us and habits because we habitually use things and do things and they start to shape the way we think. So, um, this book is really great. Um, he's a, a lot of it's focused on like, you know, entrepreneur stuff and business, whatever. That's not as interesting to me. What he, but what he talks about is just trying to explain to layman's like me, um, some of the, um, the, 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 like behind the scenes, like how your brain works when you're actually uh, developing these these habits. He talks about um, all these people have, who have studied this have identified um, three things in what he calls the habit loop, hmm. um, which is cue, routine, and reward. So you, you get a cue. <clears throat> uh, a positive one would say, you know, like, uh, you know, you smell... A sweet smell at you go to baseball. You hear the crack oh, uh, of yeah, the yeah, baseball bat, yeah. and you instantly think, "I want a hot dog." Yeah, right. Oh yeah, it, it's, it's a like cue a Pavlovian. Yeah, response. exactly. Right. See so this cue, or you know, whatever your spouse talks in that certain way that just cues you to get frustrated. That's right. the negative side, right? Of it. So you have this this cue and then you have a routine. This It plays out in a certain way. You always get the hot dog and you always respond to your wife in that way and then you have this tiff or whatever. And then there's this reward, there's this response or this um, something that comes out from it. And that habit loop ingrains these habits. Mm. And so he's saying, that's just the way our brains work. So of course that could be really dramatically bad or really powerfully good. And so he says here in um, <clears throat> describing the habit loop, He says, this explains why it's so hard to create exercise habits, for instance, or to change what we eat. Once we develop a routine of sitting on the couch rather than running or snacking whenever we pass a donut box, those patterns always remain inside our heads. By that same rule though, if we learn to create new neurological routines that overpower those behaviors, if we take control of the habit loop, we can force those bad tendencies into the background. Hmm. At the same time, however, the brain's dependence on automatic routines can be dangerous. Habits are often as much a curse as a benefit. Wow. So I think the habit loop thing is really important because we're not, you know, merely our habits,
0: but right. we,
1: we do operate out of our habits. That's the way our brain clicks and works. And so uh, I think that really helps us think about, okay, if we want craft in our lives, and if we want it as part of shaping us and making us um, really engage with the world in a meaningful, rich way, how can we get more of it? How yeah. can it be habitual, a practice?
0: <clears throat> yeah. And uh, so for, for some inspiration in that way, um, I think about when we sat down uh, and talked to Yoga Sundquist a few years ago, and we interviewed him for issue six of the yeah. magazine. Um, that was a lot of fun mm. that that night we were sitting there in that like <laughs> that pub restaurant. with with yoga and kenneth and um, kenneth Courtmeyer and uh, just just chatting about sloyd and life and everything. Mm. So we were asking T- trying to
1: uh, transcribe that the recording of that dinner oh, my conversation goodness. all the dishes clanging and yeah. then um, the waitstaff, the waitress yeah, who asking came up if we and... need more, you
0: know, a refill or whatever, and it was like <laughs> all over the place um, but we, we wanted to ask yoga about Sloyd because Sloyd um, well, first, I'll say we asked him to define it um, a lot of you have heard the term Sloyd or Sloyd knife or, or, or maybe you've seen yoga's book about Sloyd, um, but he told us very simply, Sloyd is the Swedish word for craft It's an old word with Viking roots and describes the manufacture of items made in the home for your own needs. People have been doing this for 20,000 years to survive, producing textiles, household goods, furniture, and the tools used for daily chores and transportation. They did it all by themselves. And so here's an important aspect of Sloyd, which we'll talk about a little bit. He says, it's a mobile craft, and so the tools can travel with you. By carrying just a few of them, you can make small items anywhere. It's freeing. You don't need a big workshop with a lot of power tools and accessories. So, what what Yoga was sharing with us about Sloyd is, and maybe uh, some of you have seen um, in in his dad Villy's book about spoon carving. There's a picture there of him <laughs> carving a spoon on a train, right? And he's yeah. he's just gone and like um, we've heard. Uh, Peter Fawlesby shared the story of bringing his his knives and his basket and his hatchet to the park. Right? I, don't, I don't think he brought his hatchet. Okay, well I would have brought my hatchet. But <laughs> but sitting there, you know, he's like, and here's this big bearded guy in the park watching the kids play with a knife, carving spoons, and it, it attracts some curiosity, you know, like <laughs> or repels. Sir, curiosity. what are you
1: doing there? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: But um, the idea of of Sloyd as, is something. That is, um, it is not just you know your every few weeks you get into the shop. It becomes this this lifestyle thing. And so yoga told us this. He said in this era of constant consumerism, sloyd is a survival kit. When I see a person get the spark to do crafts, how they feel more confident with themselves and their skills, and how they can master their environment, it motivates me. If they feel confident in themselves, they'll be a better person to their friends, a good parent to their children. They'll feel like, I can fix things. I'm not unhandy. So he's talking about craftsmanship in a much bigger way than, than we might if we're just kind of sticking it in its box that we dig into every few weeks or whatever. He's saying this is like a lifestyle thing. Mm-hmm. This affects the way you think about everything. And um, one other place where he was talking about this, just kind of as a metaphor for Sloyd, is carrying the Sloyd knife on your belt. Uh, We asked him about the phrase his father used to use that is is a a very old traditional phrase. It's a knifeless man is a lifeless man. So the idea is that if you didn't have your knife with you, you were unable to function. And he says, yeah, when when I grew up, everyone had a knife on their belt. In everyday life, opening packages, cutting a piece of wire, you need a knife. When you didn't have it, you felt naked. It was part of everyday life, and almost everything you used was made of wood. When you had a problem and something needed repair, you took out your knife and fixed it. So the Sloyd approach is one that just encompasses all of life, and you're always looking to... like." Um, see how you can modify your environment in a helpful way. Something needs broken, you fix it. Something can be modified to be better, you just do that work. And, um, you know, the slide knife is a very uh, transportable tool that can do a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. So Yoga was, uh, he was really passionate about just weaving craft uh, all throughout life. Uh, and so that was... It was really great to talk to him about that and to get that perspective.
1: Yeah. It reminds me of, you were just telling me a story about, um, uh, where were you at that you had, um, the the conference or the, oh, at, uh, the, the homeschooling thing. Oh yeah. The convention or whatever. Yeah. 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 And you were talking about, um, about your wife Mm -hmm. knitting. Yes. So
0: she is able to, because my wife knits, she can make socks, like, as fast, well, it's slight exaggeration to say as fast as you can go to the store and buy a pair, because it does, it takes a few days, but she can make pairs of socks, and they're beautiful, and they're awesome, and she's gotten so, so quick at knitting, and she's able to do it anywhere, right, she's able to, um, to, uh, sit and listen and take in information while, while knitting. And it is such a, a practical and useful skill. And, uh, to, to be able to carry that skill around with you. Um, and it's just in a little bag and I'm, I'm often just very jealous of that. Cause I'm like, I can't, it's hard. It's harder to do that with woodworking mm-hmm. unless you specifically want to carve something. But Bill Copperthwaite talked about knitting too. He says, uh, Hand knitting is one of the most efficient methods of production ever developed when all costs are considered. He's mad, you say, but read on. And then he goes (laughs) on and he talks about how it's so efficient because it's quiet. It doesn't interfere with conversation. It's soothing and repetitive. It can be done at odd moments in the day when the hands are idle and desiring activity. So he says, knitting is an extremely ancient craft that remains altogether viable today. The quality of timelessness adds to the knitting's incomparable, unquantifiable beauty. There are many old techniques of handwork still alive and well, but knitting is the finest of them all. And then he (laughs) says, how's that for bald, unadulterated, first-class prejudice?
1: (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so knitting mm-hmm. okay that's great you know you can carry around your knitting mm-hmm. and you can do that however i don't knit i'm not necessarily drawn to knitting right so i mean thinking about woodworking like okay a workbench is not really portable um and yoga was talking about sloyd as being uh, potentially portable yeah um and you know how can you do this how can you how can you bring woodworking how can you try to give woodworking that same sort of portability yeah uh
0: and we we were talking about in the latest issue of uh magazine oh, yeah. right there's this great this fun interview with uh daniel Burhe who seems like a really cool guy he's got such an interesting background but he invented um this thing it's called a sloid Pung, okay <laughs> sloid Pung, and it's it's like this this wearable apron Basket, this canvas thing, so he can he can walk around with this, and it, he wears it around his his neck, and it catches all his shaving, so he can go anywhere and do his his spoon carving. And he says the the greatest thing in this interview in here, he says, with with this sloyd pung that he uses, he says, I mean, he says, I have eliminated the concept of waiting altogether. There is no waiting, only sloid. I just love that. There's, <laughs> I mean that's like filling those odd moments of your day with craft. There is no, there is no waiting. Only, only Sloyd. Sloyd. Uh, yeah. So it's like a big kangaroo. Yeah, it's pouch. a big kangaroo pouch. It's like to an catch apron that you pull up.
1: Yeah. I, I hell, still. What a
0: crazy thing. Yeah. I mean, it's a great idea. I do think you probably get some sideways glances, um, <laughs> but still, I mean that that's a that's one good concept for those who are really interested in spoon carving and want to. Uh, keep at it. That's a great way to go, and your mess is all contained. But sure,
1: I mean, I think that's the thing: is that knitting doesn't make a mess. Woodworking yeah. does make a mess. Woodworking makes a mess. So you kind of have to think about: all right, I'm going to be making a mess. they are going to be shavings yeah. or sawdust. So, how can I contain them? If it's not in this kangaroo sloidpung pung thing, yeah. uh, how do I do it in a space that's I can quickly clean it up or whatever? Yeah. Um, it's got to be in your shop. Yeah, definitely. And I think so. The the real uh, thing is to figure out. Okay, if you want to weave this into your life, um, you want to spend. You want to figure out how can I do it for a few minutes at a time. Because obviously, it's not sustainable to say I'm going to spend. I'm going to commit an hour and a half a day to doing craft work. I don't know many people that can do that. Um, and so, what you should, I think, it would be better to commit to something totally realistic. Like yeah. Ten minutes a day. Ten minutes. And so, if you could get ten minutes a day, what would it have to what would it take for you to be able to do that? Cause if you clean up, if it takes you 10 minutes yeah. to clean up, then that's, that's not going to work. Yeah. Um, I was uh, <laughs> reading in, uh, Michael, uh, Mike Peckovich's book, the why and how of woodworking. And he was talking about this whole thing. He has a section called about, uh, about making, uh, doing different woodworking. The section is called making it a habit. And this nice. is exactly like, I think, uh, Borgman planted the seed, and Pekovich really um, drew it out for me in thinking about this. He says, I make a point to go into my shop just about every day. That rarely means a full day, and often means as little as 15 minutes or so. The important thing is to get in there. Mm. No matter how slowly a project may feel like it's progressing, it will be moving forward if you continue to chip away at it. One of the real killers of momentum is an extended break. The rhythm, the train of thought gets lost, and then he talks about how you, when you come back after weeks and you look at a stack of parts, you're like, mm-hmm. okay, what, wait, was, I what was I doing? What was I doing? And then you spend, you know, ten minutes scratching your head trying to figure it out. He said, better, like you should have, if you did ten minutes a day and you had a space set up that you could keep working on it. He said. Um, uh, Thinking of your next move can eat up a lot of precious shop time. So I try to do as much of that as I can before I get into the shop. I've solved more joinery problems and brainstormed more jigs while lying awake in bed than at any other time. Mm. So basically what, what Pekovic is saying is he's saying, I, I spend you know about 15 minutes a day in the shop usually, but I'm always thinking about it. Yeah. I'm always thinking when I'm in traffic, I'm standing in line, I'm devising what's the next step I'm going to take. So it's the minute you walk into your shop, you're cutting, you're sawing, yep. you're ready to go. You're not wasting time. Yeah, um, and I think that's a really helpful thing because a lot of us feel like, I can't give real time to get better at this. And he's saying 10 minutes, 15 minutes, mm-hmm. just commit something. Um, and for him, that's <clears throat> he's talking about that in terms of productivity, that by the end of the year, you will have made more than if you try to, you know, commit larger chunks of time. But on our end, we're saying, and if you're also looking at this from this, uh, you know, person shaping, self transformation, hobbyist, I just do it because I love it, yep. kind of thing. Again, the most powerful way to do that is by 10 minutes a day, yeah,
0: making a practice of being in the shop, yeah, and uh, and moving ahead. And I really like that idea of of just like <laughs> doing your head scratching elsewhere. You know, where when you have a problem, if you allow yourself to to think about that problem in those odd moments throughout the day. And, you know, later we'll talk about some practical stuff for maybe, um, you know, helping in a very practical way to weave more craft into your life. But just like have a notebook and write it down, like Mm -hmm. what you come up with, because so often we will we'll discuss something. We come up with some idea. We we write it down and then we forget it but then we have it so mm-hmm. that when when it's time to come back to that we can say oh yeah this is what this is what i figured out and i'm just i'm going to do that that's great
1: well i do the same thing with writing and research too i mean i don't say okay now i'm going to block out time and then think about a book i want to write and some ideas i'm just always thinking about it every day i'm jotting down one observation or two observations and so it's i mean it's sort of like we were talking about it's kind of like language immersion
0: mhm
1: um you know where you um i remember talking with the guy who didn't speak spanish at all and he uh started renting a house with i think it was three guys who only spoke spanish there you go and you know what That's he learned how you learn spanish who used the toilet paper how do you say that yeah in spanish um so that that immersion sort of thing um is helpful. And of course we can't immerse ourselves, we can't all immerse ourselves into craft life like that. Um, but it just shows that the more it's in your life at a really, um, daily level, just embedded into your life, the quicker you're going to pick it up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it does change you. I mean, in good ways, we all talk about that. Like, um, I think about, you know, when you want to, when you want to work towards a place where you can think of yourself as a, a craftsman or an artisan or a maker or however, however you frame that in your mind, it, it's part of your identity, like that practice becomes part of who you are and how you relate with the world, how you look at the world. And that's a really important and valuable thing. But it also it takes dedication I mean, you don't just become that because you want to. you become that because that's who you are, and you who you are is what you practice right regularly in and out. So um immersion, you know, just just do it just be be in your shop, go down there.
1: yeah my my wife teaches piano, and her students she always tells them what they inevitably do is they don't practice all week right and then you cram uh, in the morning of the practice they'll spend 20 minutes working really hard to try to catch up and of course it does very little for them yeah um but those students who spend five ten minutes a day every day they come back the next week yeah and they've made huge leaps and bounds um and this is not groundbreaking yeah this is just this is the, the whole idea of practice. Yeah. What did Bill Coffert so say about
0: his firewood? Like he was cutting by hand, you know, with a handsaw and an ax and he's like five minutes a day yeah. and it gets all my firewood done for the year. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Who doesn't have five minutes that they can, you know, take away from scrolling on their screen and go and cut some firewood. Yeah. Or cut some dovetails, cut some dovetails. Whatever. Uh, yeah. So what kind of practical, Uh, Advice could we offer?
1: Well, um, thinking about your idea of, you know, writing stuff down, um, I would say um, keeping, when you have that idea, when you say, okay, this is how I'm going to solve that. This is how I'm going to approach this. Or, oh, I want to design that. Write that down. Yeah. you got to make sure that you catch that as it floats through your mind. I mean, if you're like me, I, I don't know. Maybe some people can just hold on to that stuff. But, um, I find, for me, I, I'm able to really focus on something quite intently and then forget everything else around me. You move on. Yeah. So it can be five minutes later, I'm trying to remember something, and five minutes later, it's gone, totally gone, because I'm so focused on the next thing. And that's that's my weakness. So if I write it down, I can, I can recall it. Um, and so I think that's a, a big part of it for me is just kind of have it be a part of your thought life and be writing ideas down, sketch little um, drawings. Uh, that's, that's one practical way to kind of get craft into your life. If you come up with a new design or um, a technique or you find this interesting um, quotation from an article you read, file all that, that, that away and be thinking about that. And as soon as you step into the shop, that stuff, you can recall that really quick then. Yeah. Even just the process of writing it down is enough usually just to have it stick in my mind. Yeah, uh, I don't usually have to pick that back up to look at it. It's already in there yeah. because I wrote it down.
0: Yeah, it it just reaccesses that that whole thought process for you because you wrote it down. <coughs> um, another is is to read lots of books. There's a lot of great stuff out there on in print that is not in the digital world. You can't yeah. Google it, right? Yeah, the, you you got to find it in books. Totally, and they're there. They're portable. They're quiet. Uh, they won't get you a funny look if you sit in the park and read it. Um, and also, Joshua, what you do in books is is great. You do lots of highlighting and note-taking mm-hmm. throughout. Yep. So when a thought occurs to you as you're reading, that is there and connected with the text. And again, it it's kind of helps you to reaccess your thought
1: process. Yeah, well, and we just read from how many different... Yeah, five, we had five, a book, five different books. pile of highlights, and here. they're all highlighted and have little dots and then little notes on the side. Because we, when we were talking about this podcast, I instantly was saying, "Oh yeah," and then this book, and I can grab the Duhigg book, and then I flipped it right open, and everything's highlighted, and it's a it's a, a, a means of recalling the things that I was meditating on while mm-hmm. reading through it, um, and that's that's a really powerful way to have that those ideas assimilate into your your thinking.
0: Yeah. So so, so books. Uh, use books to be a student of your craft, even when you're not able to be uh, in the shop. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I think the other thing I would say is um, to to, say like with Sloyd, to have a knife on your hip. Yeah. Uh, you know, to, to have that, that, that what is it, the, the knifeless man is a lifeless man idea, right. that have a knife on your hip, um, have a portable saw in your car at all times or yep. whatever, because you know, you'll find some, some branch that you can harvest or whatever on the side of the road. Um, and there's some of that stuff that is, um, if you don't have the tool, you will guaranteed be forced to walk away from it. Yeah. If you do have the tool, you'll see opportunities all over the place. (laughs) Yeah. It changes your mindset when that tool is
0: with you and you can go, Oh yeah, I can do this right now. I can, I can get that. I can get that to a size that'll fit in my trunk. That's great. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, so have have some of those simple tools with you uh, at all times. Um, uh, you know how the, we talk about, like, uh, if you can't, who is it? The quote's attributed to Albert Einstein, but if you can't explain something to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. Sure. Um, so try to teach someone else what you know. Mm-hmm. Try to teach someone else a skill, a woodworking skill. Bring them into sh- the shop and just show them how, do you, how to, Cross-cut a board square with a handsaw. Um, to many people, that is such a novel thing to do. Yeah, It's so unique to cut a board with a handsaw. They're like, whoa, that's like what those old-timey people did. <laughs> Bring them in and show them how to do that. And you'll find yourself realizing actually like how much knowledge you have in your body, maybe not in your mind, but you have to express it to somebody else. Yep. So when you express how to hold, put your knee on the board and use the, the saw bench and the angle to hold this, you'll be like, oh, wow, I had all this knowledge, but now I'm putting it into words for someone else. Or
1: or you'll discover, I have no idea what I'm talking right. about. <laughs> and you'll know why. Equally valuable. Say, okay, that is interesting. Well, huh. Well, how does that work then? Yeah. And you'll be forced to figure out. So it's, it's forcing the opportunity for you to grow. It's yeah, forcing you to say, oh, I got to look the answer where's where's my bruce hoadley book yeah I exactly want i want books.
0: to know what's going on here because all of a sudden you realize where all the holes in your knowledge are yeah. when you try and teach somebody else um so the other thing and uh you know it it goes back to uh, the idea of Sloyd as like all of life stuff it's like integrate these skills into all areas how does woodworking relate to your cooking those mm-hmm. skills how does How do woodworking skills relate to like driving a car or riding a bicycle or going for a hike? Like, how can you weave these areas of skill together Mm -hmm. in your life? Like when you're out for a hike, how can that experience feed your woodworking knowledge or insight? How would it for you? Uh, How would hiking? Yeah. So I am always trying to figure out all the different tree species. Mm -hmm. And I'm like... What what is this tree? I don't know what this is. I'll pull out the little guide and see if I can find it. I'm like, okay, well, that's really cool. I didn't realize, like, I just realized the other day that we have a different variety of maples on our property than I was aware of. I thought we were just like red and sugar maples, but I found mountain maples. And I'm like, oh, I wasn't even aware of these as this unique huh. species. So, and mountain maples are, they're used for this and that and the other thing. So I just file that away. Yeah. It's like new information. Yeah. Um, so, and it, it connects with woodworking and it also is this really cool thing to know when you're on a hike, you know, mm-hmm. to tell, just to understand um, the ecology
1: of the area and where you're going. I think for me, too, um, you know, I think about a, a lot of the um, the latches and the, the handles on doors for my outbuildings and yeah. my property are all wooden. You're looking for and those doors, shapes. Yeah, and the doors yeah. are, well, there's that. Yeah, harvesting branches and crooks uh, for that. But then also just the doors are wooden. Everything's solid wood. And you quickly get to learn how this material functions. Like I say, even like my chicken house, I have this little door, which is a solid uh, probably I think a 10 or 10 inch wide board, 10 or 11 inches mm. of pine. And I fit it nice and snug. Just right. Yeah. Of course, like a piston moron. fit chicken coop door. <laughs> and instantly rain came in. The thing just seized up. Now, of course I tried to allow for some room, but it turns out I, I way underestimated how mm. much it expands. And so I had to shave it down. And the same thing with the egg door, it's the exact same thing. The rain hit it and the thing just, you know, pinched really tight. I thought I had enough space but I didn't and the more of that you put in your life the more you're gonna get better understand the material and then how to adjust it and you'll you'll see like the latch to our the front door of our workshop has is it ash or is this it, maple I think a, a little maple um, I'm trying to describe it here it's like a little um, spring it's, a, it's yeah. a small piece of wood that's pushing the latch back down and it's just interesting to see how much flexibility that thing can take yeah. Um. It, it hasn't broken, but if you if I said, oh no, I'm just gonna go to the big box store, just buy a metal latch yeah. done, you wouldn't have you'd be missing that opportunity to learn about wood in different ways. So in my life, I think about that a lot. How can I have more wood in my life? And, yeah. And and interact with it. And so it. I know it's really bizarre, but when the season shifts, and doors start sticking, and everything yeah. starts shifting it's weird but i actually appreciate it there's something about it that to me signals the change of seasons and it calls me to engage that stuck drawer and that (laughs) stuck door and you know whatever the floors get gappy in the winter time exactly and uh, to me i think that's interesting of course that can be inconvenient in certain circumstances but, but some of it's not inconvenient it's just intriguing and interesting to me yeah um and i think that's that's so much of the way the world is so it makes sense to, for me to put that in my life so I can see that.
0: Yeah, totally. And so, uh, let's go like very, uh, practically like in our shops, mm-hmm. like in our workspace, if, if you don't have a shop, maybe you have a closet with a little bench or yep. you have, you know, the, uh, the kitchen counter sometimes mm-hmm. that can work, you know, whatever you have for your woodworking at whatever scale, uh, what's, How can we maximize the use of that space? How can we set up our space so that it's ready to go?
1: Well, everybody's situation is going to be different because it depends on where the workspace is. But I would say the primary goal is to figure out how can you have your tools at the ready, Mm. sitting right there, ready to grab. Like Basically, I would say... See how close you can get your workspace into your living space, yeah. how close it can be, and um, how fast you can get your setup time to be, or, or how short your setup yeah. time should be. So if you have a workshop right out your kitchen door into this you know L, and you have your tools to sit in your bench, so it's 10 steps away from your kitchen, yeah. that would be ideal. You can yeah. just walk right out, or, you know, say you're into slide carving, and so you in your living room maybe you don't have kids running around or whatever you're you know you have a sloyd knife uh, sitting right on your desk or right on your coffee table or your mm-hmm. kitchen table so it's just you're always tripping over it it's always there it's always yeah. right in front of you but if you file everything away back in the closet the chances yeah. of you actually pulling, pulling it, out it out to are, set up are, are slim it's like my guitar playing i used to play a lot of guitar And I had kids and I I used to leave my guitar in my living room on a stand and I would pick it up every day, multiple times a day because there it was. I'd play for two minutes, you know, it was great. And then I'd go finish my lunch or whatever. Now with kids running around, I don't have it right there in my living room. I I don't ever play guitar anymore. It's it's totally out of my life because it takes so much time to pull the thing out and set it up. And so... um... You know, that's what I'm thinking about with my music making. How can I have it more in my way, right. more right in so my you, space? So you pick it up and you
0: strum it a couple times and you sit it
1: back down, but yep. you're still doing that yeah, exactly. regularly. So, so for woodworking, I would think the ideal way is to have it as much in your, your living space as possible.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that goes with that is then that space is you don't mess with it. It's, mm, it yeah, is it sure. is the workspace. It is not the storage place for library books. Mm-hmm. It's not the place to put motorcycle exhaust parts. You know, you don't <laughs> you don't throw your junk on the bench when you're not using it. Yeah, the bench right. space is forward-working, so don't put anything else there because then you'll just have to pick that up and move it, mm-hmm. and that'll be a whole process, and you'll lose
1: that window. Yeah, horizontal spaces oh. tend to accumulate. I actually... That happens in our house. Every horizontal space is covered all the time. And I made this one chest. And I wanted... It's a brilliant design. Yeah. It's got a slanted lid. <laughs> and do you know how often there's something sitting on top of it? Never. <laughs> because it just slides off. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Now, don't make a slanted workbench top. Uh, right. But it's just, it's a real thing that if you have a workbench right out your door or something in your entry or something, it's going to get boots. Set on it, or a box mm-hmm. that needs to go out to the car, or something, and it's just—it sounds so lame, but it's the way habits work. This this cue and routine and reward that if you always have stuff on your bench and it always takes you two minutes to move stuff,
0: you just won't bother. You're never
1: gonna, yeah. you're very rarely gonna bother to do <clears throat> it. So you want it to be—it's um, sort of like the path of least resistance. Right. You want this stuff in the path of least resistance that it's easier and just so obvious to just pick the knife up and carve a little bit Yeah, that, that it should be more obvious than just bypassing it. Yeah,
0: set yourself up for instant gratification in that way <laughs> right? There's some value to that yeah. in That, that might sound
1: like a low view of humanity <laughs> um, but I think Charles Duhigg would say well, think of it however you want, that's how our brains work yeah. you know, we do what is habitual Yeah. Um, so yeah I mean that stuff has been helpful to me uh, to try to figure out ways in my own life and my property and house and how I can get more of it just regular. Yeah, yeah.
0: and for everyone your situation is different and uh, we, we would love to hear from you and your circumstances like how you uh, struggle with getting more craft or more woodworking in your life and maybe ideas that you've come up with. Uh, so drop us a line. That would be awesome to hear from you and to interact
1: about this topic. Great. Well, thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we are uh, also now on Spotify, as we mentioned before. So Spotify, iTunes. Pandora. S- oh, SoundCloud. Pandora. Yeah. Wow. It really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's cool. We're all over the place now, I guess. I guess so. Uh, if you have any comments or questions about this or any great ideas for us, uh, you can leave them below. We'll see you next time.